Welcome to ATRA, Voices from the Field. This sustainable agriculture podcast is presented by the National Center for Appropriate Technologies ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service. Hi, this is Rich Myers with NCAT. In this episode, Nina Prater, an agriculture specialist in NCAT's Southeast Regional Office in Fayetteville, Arkansas, talks with Jay Randolph about prairie restoration. Jay is the Ben Garen Golf Course Superintendent and Sebastian County Park Administrator in Fort Smith, Arkansas. They discuss the prairie restoration work Jay has undertaken at the golf course since 2016. The conversation covers all the improvements Jay has seen at the park since starting this work and all the benefits any landowner can enjoy from reestablishing diverse prairie ecosystems. Let's listen. Hi, this is Nina Prater with NCAT's Southeast Office, and I'm here in Fort Smith, Arkansas today with Jay Randolph. Jay, would you mind introducing yourself and telling, telling us what your, your position is here? Yeah, you bet. Uh, my name's Jay Randolph. I'm a uh, golf course superintendent for Ben Garen Golf Course and the uh, Sebastian County Park Administrator. And we've had a really great day um, touring some of the work you've been doing here at the golf course. Um, we don't normally talk golf on the uh, ATRA podcast, but you're doing some really unique uh, work here um, with prairie restoration. So that's what I was hoping you could, you could tell us about. Um, would you mind uh, talking a little bit about how you got started um, with your prairie restoration project mm-hmm. here at Ben Garen Park? You bet. Uh, goes back to 2016, and uh, um, with the recession of, of 2008, uh, golf courses, like any business, really had, were, had really been hit hard, and a lot of our workforce uh, had decreased, and, and we didn't have enough people really to get uh, what we need to get done out on the golf course. So I was looking for ways to reduce um, areas that were, we were pretty intensively managed mm-hmm. and um, so we started looking at areas that uh, that we could convert to some type of uh, natural or native um, habitat and uh, while I was doing the research I realized that uh, the golf course used to be on what was once a, a rather large prairie here in Fort Smith called Mazar Prairie and uh, so um, we decided that that would be the way we wanted to go to to uh, put the the native tall grass prairie in certain areas uh, around the golf course, and uh, so we started that, like I said, back in 2016. And so far, we've done a little over 100 acres on the golf course. Wow! And so, in 2016, you decided to switch to this management of of the areas around the the golf course. Mm-hmm. Um, what were the first steps you had to take to to start reestablishing yeah. this, the, well, this native Well, it would prairie? be a little bit different, and it was a little bit different on the golf course than, than what, a, let's say, a private landowner with, you know, just several acres or hundreds of acres out in the back that, that didn't, you know, that were just squared off or whatever. Um, you know, we had certain holes that uh, that people are out there playing a recreational sport on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, um, golf balls aren't cheap either. And mm-hmm. uh, so uh, the first things we did, because we didn't want to put this in, 
and have uh, golfers in the public come back three or four months later and say, I'm hitting my ball in this place every time and I've lost hundreds of dollars worth of golf balls or driving their carts through it or whatever. So actually the first thing we did in 2016 when the Bermuda grass was dormant is uh, we flagged areas off of the proposed native areas that we were going to put in with red flags and we bought some red dye. And like right now, as you saw today out there, the Bermuda grass is is basically a a tan, very light color. Mm -hmm. So we sprayed it with red dye. So it stood out like a sore thumb. Mm -hmm. And we we communicated with the pro shop and put signs up that uh, these were the proposed native areas that we were planning um, that would be marked in red. So if you hit your golf ball in it several times, every time you play, then we've got it in the wrong spot. And you need to let us know and we'll... we'll, Mm -hmm either shrink it up in size or move it to another area. So we did that through the winter of 2016, and we did have to move a, a couple of them, uh, the areas that we ha- had proposed. And uh, and then um, once we decided uh, where those areas were going to be, you know, long-term, where we, you know, weren't getting complaints about them, uh, when the Bermuda grass came out of dormancy, then we started spraying it out with herbicides, mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. that Bermuda grass out. And we did that a whole season. And uh, and then the following season is when we come in and we actually seed the native grasses. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the process in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you um, you had to get rid of the Bermuda grass because it outcompetes. That's right. It outcompetes in, in mm-hmm. Bermuda grasses is very aggressive uh, and, uh, you know, what we saw the first actual small track that we did I think it's about an acre that we were looking out there on earlier today and I was showing you an area that that area we actually didn't spray out a whole year we sprayed out a couple times and and you think the Bermuda grass is dead but it 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 came back and Mm -hmm. we learned our lesson uh, quickly on that one and the rest of them we sprayed out the full year and, and any new plots that we have ongoing not only on the golf course but other areas in Sebastian County Parks now um, we um, we spray out a full year mm-hmm. and that seems to help a lot mm-hmm. yeah and so then you you <coughs> sprayed out the Bermuda grass mm-hmm. and then seeded in we did species. and that's a whole nother story in and of itself is is finding a seed source mm-hmm. and uh, so we looked around and went to talk to NRCS and talk to uh, uh, Arkansas Game and Fish and, and others about where to find native tall grass prairie seed. And, and you can also go through the just private vendors, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, I know there's several in Missouri that you can buy uh, native uh, tall grass prairie, either, either grasses or, or forb seed from. Um, but Anyway, so we had to find a place to find get some seed, and we wanted to stick with uh, what's native to our area as much as possible, and we were lucky enough uh, to get permission to harvest seed from some of the few remaining uh, pieces of, of virgin Mazar prairie that are left, which is about 250 acres roughly. And uh, so we started that in the fall, and during the summer of 2016 and have done it every year and this past year another local prairie uh just south of fort smith called long prairie we also got permission from a landowner there um to um to harvest seed from his property also Mm -hmm. and uh the the gentleman mr edmondson um from uh 
from the piece of long prairie uh, that we harvest seed from. Um, he knew that he had something interesting out there, but now that we've been getting seed from it and pointing things out to him, it, it's really been a, a neat thing for him too right. to realize what he really did have in yeah. his, you know, on his property. That, right? Oh yeah, and and some of the wildflowers and other uh, animals. Actually, we actually just saw a. Um, an ant mound. It's it's the southern harvester ant, hmm. and it was one that Thomas Nuttall, mm-hmm. that when he came through, had uh, put in his notebooks that he had seen. Mm-hmm. And Can you se- explain who Thomas Nuttall? Yeah. Is for okay. Listeners? So so Thomas Nuttall actually in uh, eighteen nineteen, just two years after Fort Smith uh, had uh, um, started. Um, he came through and basically was one of the first, um, he was a naturalist, botanist, you know, kind of renaissance man in, in terms of the sciences, especially natural sciences back then. But he came through two years after the fort was open and was really the first scientific type of explorer that came through this area and uh, basically based out of Fort Smith. And so in his journal, he talks about the River Valley prairies and, and other prairies in Oklahoma and, and south of here. And um, he had uh, made comment of lots of the plant and animal life around here. One mm-hmm. of those, again, was, was the ant mounds that he had seen. And now those are very few and far between to even find. Wow. And, um, and like I said, he has one down there on Long Prairie. And, and um, there's been a couple found out by Fort Chaffee, but... Uh, uh, again, because of habitat loss, you know, in terms of the tall grass prairie ecosystem, they're, they're just harder and harder to find. Mm-hmm. So if you were to hazard a guess as to how many species of plants you, um, you are, your goal is to establish, what, like what kind of diversity is normal in a tall grass prairie? Yeah, they're, they're extremely diverse. In fact, they're one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet and uh, I don't know because that research I don't think has been done on the virgin pieces of Mazar Prairie on how many species are in there hmm. um, but I know in Missouri I think that they hit a world record a couple of years ago with one of their um, their prairies that they take care of the I think it's the Missouri Prairie Foundation up there but they uh, um, they had had done a survey and I think that they found Gosh, I'm wanting to say in the low hundreds of plants, like in a square meter or something. I mean, it was wow. in, it's incredible. So yeah. you do you you have um, not only grasses and forbs, but you have sedges and rushes and I mean, you name it. And uh, in high quality um, prairies, um, the diversity is is unbelievable, really. Mm-hmm. And um, it goes, you know, you can you can go out on a prairie in March especially Mazar Prairie, the virgin pieces that are left there, and, and you get Indian paintbrush and things that start blooming, and it goes all the way through the fall. And uh, you even have cool season grasses like June grass right now that uh, that are still out there and that are active. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's really a, a full season, although most of the plants are warm season plants, but, uh, but you have plants all season long. And that's what we're trying to do. Again, by harvesting the seed on on Mazar Prairie, is that we're trying to mimic Mazar Prairie in our restoration. But uh, um, you know, restorations still don't um, think the oldest re- uh, restoration in the United States is the one that the University of Wisconsin Madison, I believe, 
with Aldo Leopold, you know, close oh, yeah. to a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. I think uh, had started, and and I read something recently that said even that first restoration that happened way back then still doesn't, you know, uh, hold its own or, or mimic completely the the virgin pieces of prairie that are up there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, even after a hundred years, yeah. it just makes you realize how complicated that's exactly the, right the prairie ecosystem is um <clears throat> so part of part of your maintenance of the the prairie that we got to witness today is the annual uh controlled burn or prescribed burn i guess um can you talk about how that uh the fire eco ecology plays in with the the prairie yeah and and uh it's it's we know that the Native Americans, you know, used fire for several different reasons. Uh, you know, they they did it because basically those prairies were their medicine cabinet, and they knew if they burned at a certain time of year, at a certain um, way, that uh, maybe certain plants would come back better the following year that they they used more of, um, and they used it for protection. You know. I showed you earlier some of the tall grass prairie out there, how tall it could be. You know, you can imagine thousands and thousands of acres of that. You would want to know what's on the other side of it, whether Mm -hmm. it's a wild beast that's going to get you or another tribe that wants to war with you. So they used it for safe passage, um, and they used it to get rid of the trees. And, you know, going back to Thomas Nuttall, uh, when he came through in 1819 uh, in his journal, he put he could perceive no reason for the lack of trees in the River Valley prairies besides the annual fires that the Native Americans were still performing. And again, mm-hmm. this is two years after the fort had been here. Right. And uh, so in our um, restoration effort here, um, we do an annual burn, and um, we've done it at different times, but generally right now we do it in January. And uh, we do it to, to help with the invasives that we have, the non-native invasives. Uh, we do it to uh, reduce all the sapling trees uh, that are there. We also do it to get back down to bare ground that we can seed, uh, put the seed, and it can get good seed soil contact so it has a better chance of germinating. And like we discussed earlier, um, we also do it because tall fescue has been planted here in the past, like a lot of areas in Arkansas. So after a burn, uh, we can get everything out of the way that we can come back and, and spray out that tall fescue a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With the herbicide to, That's right. to get That's rid of right. it. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. <clears throat> now, a lot of our listeners um, are maybe organic farmers or trying to reduce the amount of times they mm-hmm. spray. So do you see the, the herbicide use as a way to move towards sort of like a climax community? Like, is there sort of an end goal of not having to use that as much? Or there is. Is and that possible? No, it is possible because if you look at the, the virgin prairies, uh, you know, for instance, the, the virgin piece of Mazar Prairie that, that we harvest the seed off of, it doesn't get burned. It only gets hayed. Mm-hmm. And uh, that very high quality tall grass prairie that's there will fend off uh, these these non-native invasives on its own. Mm-hmm. It's hard for them to get a foothold, but as soon as areas maybe get a little more high traffic, um, because the closer you get to the road on those virgin pieces of prairie, that's mm-hmm. where you start seeing the the non-native stuff on the edges Mm -hmm. and then it kind of gets to the point that it gets to a piece of that very high quality prairie and kind of 
hits a wall. But uh, so yeah, I, I think that that's possible if if you're an organic and uh, a small you know operation and you want to put in a, a pocket prayer in your backyard or something like that. You know there are ways that you can you can put that in by you know covering the ground for a season and, and using solar radiation to mm-hmm. heat up the soil underneath to take out you know bermuda grass or whatever um and uh and and then if you do get invasives in there in the future non-native invasives or any type of invasive you know you can go in there and hand rogue them out or whatever you Mm -hmm. want to do but on a large scale um in in our situation where we're a golf course and has turf grass that's like bermuda grass that's very opportunistic and very aggressive uh, I don't know if there's a, a, a faster way to get back to what we're trying to do as our goal of put in, right. you know, back tall grass prairie. I mm-hmm. think that it would just continue to take over and take over. And you're really, you know, you're taking very valuable virgin prairie seed that is handpicked, you know, and we're mm-hmm. not out there with machines. Right. And uh, so you've got all that time and, and you know, effort and, uh, and uh, to go in there. But I will say this. Over the last three or four years, where in the beginning, you know, we were using um, herbicides to take out Bermuda and obviously putting out more herbicide. Now, again, after the bird, we're basically going out there with backpack sprayers mm-hmm. and we'll be, you know, isolating sprays to, to Japanese honeysuckle or Cerecia lespedeza or to calorie pear uh, tree that comes up as a sapling. So we're not out there with big broadcast sprays anymore so even just in three years you're already that's right that's right and that's even in 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 restored Mm -hmm. areas that were once bermuda um Mm -hmm. you know that um um, so yeah i I think it's very possible but i think in the beginning again on a large scale it would be it would be difficult to to get away with some some herbicide spraying right yeah right um, so you said you started out this project as a way to reduce uh, labor costs. Um, what are some of the unexpected outcomes that have, have occurred um, in terms of uh, people in, enjoying it or seeing you know, different species come back unexpected? Um, yeah. Plant or animal? Um, what are some of the it's, it's positive been, outcomes? Oh, it's been tremendously positive. In fact, it's <laughs> been uh, almost unbelievably positive um but it it the full gamut i mean you can you can start with with ways now again we're we're a county park um in ben garen park where we started this restoration uh is about 1300 acres and we have mountain bikers hikers joggers we've got uh um 10 soccer field or I'm sorry 10 softball fields 12 soccer fields uh, aquatics park I mean this is a you know big park with lots of recreation and Mm -hmm. when people at least have come into this park and parks generally in our area they don't uh, think about driving past a field of beautiful blazing stars and uh, that are blooming and and um, and that's what we've gotten and uh, um, we've had a lot of of people that have heard about it we've been in some magazine articles which not only is is good to to understand that people are hearing about it but it's it's a it's a way you know other people are going to read that article and say well we've been thinking about doing something at this golf course or whatever one of those articles was um 
through the uh, um, NBCI, which is the Northern Bob White Conservation Initiative, and they work with uh, 25 other states, on, mm-hmm. and they work with states, game and fish agencies, and, and research universities and things like that, and private individuals to uh, help increase habitat for Bob White quail. And that is generally like a tall grass prairie situation. Although it may be a little bit different uh, in Georgia and some of those places that maybe have some pine um, areas that quail would be in. But anyway, um, so they did an article, and uh, as we were doing that article, they said, do you have an idea of how many golf courses may be in these 25 states that we represent? So we did the research, and it ended up being 9,600 golf courses, roughly. And the average golf course in the United States is 150 acres, and generally, roughly around 10% is is non-playable rough areas that can be converted. And, mm-hmm. you know, once you do the math to all that, you're talking, you know, three, 400,000 acres right. uh, that could be, you know, turned into native habitat. And uh, so it's things like that that we've seen. But just locally, um, again, we the park goers, we have a, a butterfly walk that uh, we've done the last couple of years. This year will be the third annual butterfly walk with Lori Spencer, who's known as the Arkansas butterfly lady. <laughs> and uh, she's written the Arkansas butterfly and moss uh, guidebook. And so we have that. And uh, we have lots of other things that the local master naturalist, the Western Arkansas master naturalist group comes out and um, walk through. And, and this past year we had the, uh, uh, Thomas Nuttall, it was his 200th year anniversary of coming through Fort Smith, so mm-hmm. we had a prairie walk. So we have lots of things like that throughout the year, and the community now, uh, especially with the golfers, and that's the great thing about it is is having this out there at a golf course in a park where lots of people are doing recreation, is if, if we were 30 minutes out of the way in the middle of the country, you know, yes, the few you know, folks that live next to it out in the country would know about it. But other than that, you probably wouldn't get a lot of people to it. Right. And here in the park, you know, we had 29,000 golfers wow. that played golf around the golf course last mm-hmm. year. So that's 29,000 pairs of eyes we have on this restoration that mm-hmm. can say, hey, I know so-and-so that's got something like this. I'm going to tell him about it. You know, or or I've got a pri- piece of private land, you know, right. a farm down south. I, how do I do this? You know, mm-hmm. who do I get hold of to do this? So we're really, it's it's a great way to get eyes on Tallgrass Prairie and, and get um, folks to know um, what a Tallgrass Prairie is and what it looks like. And it's a lot different than when you're driving down the turnpike doing 75 miles an hour and calling an area that just looks grassy as a prairie that's tall fescue, right. you know. Right, I mean, it's a big difference. In, in prairies, um you know, you've got to get out there and get a little up close to it. And golfers have a good way to do that because they hit their balls in these areas sometimes. <laughs> so when they go in and, and take a look at them, they can really get a close-up look at, mm-hmm. at what wildflowers are in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you could be, um, you know, creating a whole new uh, host of ecologists yeah. among the bad <laughs> golfers out there. <laughs> oh, that's really, that's really cool. And so you have, in, in the three-year time... Um, you've seen uh, more quail come in. That's right, and that's uh, <laughs> I should have hit on that earlier. So that's how the the um, National Bob White Conservation Initiative folks had heard about it. Is uh, 
we had worked in the very beginning, again, trying to find a seed source and how all this would work uh, with a, a private land biologist for Arkansas Game and Fish. His name is Levi Horrell. And uh, we were working with him in the beginning uh, with the Acres for Wildlife program. And, and um, again, we are one of the states that, that deal with the National Wildlife Conservation Initiative. And um, um, they... Uh, had gotten hold of, you know, someone from Game of Fish that had heard about it. So mm -hmm. that's how that all got started. And, uh, yes, yeah, since we started the, the program back in 2016, it didn't take less than a year. And we, we actually got quail out there. And, and we've, we've maintained two to three coveys every year since then, and which is very positive. And we've also seen, we wanted to see, we wanted to track how the process of this restoration would bring different, not only the plants, but the animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I heard someone say one time, if, if you love wildlife, you love habitat, because that's what brings it right. all in. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so that was one thing that, that uh, um, getting the Arkansas Game of Fish out here also is that... Um, um, with Levi, we started looking at the, the plants that we had in the beginning. And uh, not only with the quail coming in, but uh, because of habitat loss, um, there's, there's lots of other insects and animals that uh, um, aren't surviving or having a very hard time surviving that are, um, that are on lists that we don't want them on. And... Um, Anyway, so he had seen that we had Rattlesnake Master, the plant, uh, out when we first came out and we're looking at some property in a, in a very degraded remnant up by an old gas well on the property. And um, that's probably one of the reasons why it was up there, because they couldn't get up close and mow it and do different things over the years. But mm -hmm. anyway, saw that we saw Rattlesnake Master, and it wasn't a couple of... Uh, Months after that, roughly, that um, uh, he had called me in uh, a group with U.S. Game and Fish and, and Arkansas Fish and Game and, and some entomologists and, and others uh, were going through the state and they were doing an inventory of a, uh, a moth called the Rattlesnake Master Boar Moth that is, is specific to that plant. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so uh, they had remembered, they were in the area out at Chaffee, I believe, Fort Chaffee, um, looking at some of their plots out there, and uh, he remembered that we had some, so they were going to come by and just check out a few of our Rattlesnake Master plants to see if we had the Rattlesnake Master Boar Moth. And, uh, and they came by and they did. We found it out there on, on one of those plants, and, right. uh, which was amazing, and, and it goes to show that you don't need, yes, it would be great if we had thousands and thousands of acres, but even on a small scale like we are, where we're just talking about 100 acres mm -hmm. of native prairie, and at that time even smaller than that, you know, we were probably only talking about 20 acres that we had done or that were very, very highly degraded remnants of the original Mazar Prairie uh, that we found that. And since then, uh, we continue to make, you know, we, we see birds that, uh, that we haven't seen before, and um, and another insect, our our state uh, butterfly, the Diane fritillary. Uh, we saw several male um, fritillaries this season that we hadn't seen before, yeah. and another um, 
skipper, the uh, Bell's Roadside Skipper, which is of uh, conservation concern um, in the state. We, we found it this past year, too. So, uh, again, the, the more um, areas that, that we take back to Tallgrass Prairie, the more positive things we, we see with it. And, frankly, the, the longer that this process goes by, the more positive things we see. And mm-hmm. going back to the, the fire, you know, the fire... I would call it our most important management tool that we have in our restoration mm-hmm. uh, of what we do um, seems to, to help more than anything else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of uh, landowners that we work with um, are involved in, you know, rotational grazing of cattle and livestock and, um, and, so use grazing as a way to maintain um, their, typically these are not native prairie mm-hmm. ecosystems, but to keep a diverse pasture, um, the grazing um, is what keep, maintains that grassland ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, these prairies originally would have been in that, have both fire and grazing of Absolutely, and uh, you know, here in Arkansas, we had white-tailed deer and we had elk, but we also had bison. And uh, in fact, when Nuttall came through and had left the fort and was headed south towards the Red River, he got over where Poto, the town is now, and, mm-hmm. and uh, they had seen buffalo then. So mm-hmm. there's no doubt that they came in. In fact. Um, Further north, up in Nebraska, uh, there are certain, I think the Nature Conservancy um, uses um, that type of method for, for their prairies that they're restoring up there is, is the use of cattle mm-hmm. uh, to go in. They use fire, and they, they also use grazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think his name's Chris Helzer that's with the Nature Conservancy, and uh, he's got a blog called uh, The Prairie Ecologist. Um, and uh, he, he, it's a really good blog, and uh, he, he talks about that a lot in it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. We can link to that on the, on the website for where this no, podcast is yeah. going to be hosted. Are there any other resources you would recommend uh, uh, for folks the, wanting to learn more about yeah, this? Yeah, um, Missouri, their Prairie Foundation, they've got a really good uh website and uh they they put out a kind of a, a quarterly journal and stuff that's that's really good um and uh you know just once it, it seems like once you start asking questions and and calling around and you know it's uh you know and and that's maybe why i i wasn't so fearful of this project in the beginning is because Golf course superintendents are a pretty small group anyway. You know, there aren't, you know, like in this town, there was, there was at one time four of us. Mm-hmm. And two of those golf courses are now closed. So oh, there's wow. two of us, you know, two <laughs> golf course superintendents in, in a town of 100,000 people or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, you know, we rely on each other. And I think that's the way a, a lot of this, this you know, restoration uh, any type of habitat restoration. There's just not a lot of people out there doing it. And, uh, man, if you call somebody or even call a, a researcher that's doing stuff, either Kansas State or Oklahoma State or here in the state in Arkansas, um, you know, they they love to hear from folks. And, and they want to share ideas because they want 
folks to succeed. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the whole point of it. And mm-hmm. uh, so there's, there's, you know, it just depends on, on who's in your area and, and um, you know, um, just reaching out to somebody and you're eventually going to get connected to somebody. And I would think that NRCS would be a good place to start for mm-hmm. anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that and there there's more and more books out on it now but uh, um, you know like we had talked about earlier um, there's still so much research that needs to be done on, mm-hmm. on native habitats especially tall grass prairie habitats to get some baseline numbers so so folks can can know where they're going you mm-hmm. know and, and know how to get there in certain mm-hmm. ways so do you think just in your experience and opinion do you think any any land that formerly had prairie on it could be restored to native prairie? Absolutely, because it's not only, you know, there's, there's factors of, of why prairie exists. And um, originally the Great Plains, part of it was, and, and I'm sure it still is, it was the rain shadow or whatever you want to call it, from the Rocky Mountains, but it also mm-hmm. has to do with the underlying soil in our area. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I know up in Illinois and Iowa and places like that, it's a little bit different, but for our soils here in, in Arkansas, where native prairies existed originally, you know, there's some kind of layer underneath it uh, that's, you know, maybe several inches to a couple of feet down. In the Grand Prairie area, uh, where our largest prairie was in the state, uh, you just had a real hard pan that was underneath there. So mm-hmm. in the heavy rains, it, it didn't drain very well. Oh, so yeah. it would hold water. And the then when you got, is yeah, that what it's called? When, yeah. you, when you got really, really hot in the summertime, it was just too droughty for, for trees mm-hmm. uh, to exist very well. And in our case, just like you see out that window, all that shell, oh, yeah. is that a couple of feet down we have shell. And the clay on top is is very dense. So again, same thing. When we get lots of rain in the spring and in the fall, and even through the winter, it it stands there. It just stays there. And then the summer, it just turns into, you know, you see crevices in the soil. So, um, and that's why they existed there. So, and that's I think the same thing today. Although today, uh, again, we have so many non-native invasives. Mm-hmm. From Cerisia lespedeza, calorie pear, Japanese honeysuckle, among others, and then you throw in climate change in the mix, you know, and things that once existed here, even 50 years ago here in Fort Smith, you know, um, some of those plants, you know, may not exist here anymore and, and get pushed further north, you mm-hmm. know, and maybe certain things would come in. Um, or maybe we should start looking further south for things. I, I don't know. There's, there's so many uh, question marks, you know, for uh, going forward on, on a lot of aspects of, of everything in our lives now. Right. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty. Um, but it seems like in a pretty short amount of time, you can have a really positive impact. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I think, like I said, it just determines on the scale you want to go on. Um, and, uh, it can certainly get done. And, uh, like I said, there, it would be great if everybody could use locally sourced seed. Um, and, um, if, if they can't, you know, then something very close to home, for instance, you know, in Arkansas here, maybe get it in Missouri, if it was sourced in Missouri, 
um, from a private dealer over in Oklahoma. But those were questions I would ask is, you know, where was this source, you know, from? Mm -hmm. And they say, well, we grew it out in Missouri. Well, did you get it from Missouri originally? Right. <laughs> uh, and things. But, uh, but no, I think that, that people can do it and they get, you can get a big kick out of it. I mean, it's, you're going to see things that you've never seen and, uh, butterflies and different things coming in. And, um, if you do it on a large scale, you're going to see a lot of positive things that, um, I just, it's amazing. Even, even when the, the native grasses go dormant, you know, they've got a fall color to them and, and mm -hmm. uh, look very beautiful even in a dormant season. So it's really a year long, um, you know, um, benefit of the landscape that you can get from flowers to dormancy. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just in terms of like the water cycle, um, a lot of these, uh, these plants are adapted to this environment mm -hmm. so they can grow and thrive, That's right. whether it's a rainy season or That's a dry right. season and That's things right. like that. Um, do you also see, um, like water drainage improvement in those areas? We do. Absolutely. And, and, um, you know, native prairies, tall grass prairies in specific, I have a slide that I sometimes show in a presentation that's of a hillside on a piece of virgin Mazark prairie. And, uh, you know, tall grass prairies, uh, high quality uh, tall grass prairies, they can absorb, I think it's seven to nine inches of rain and not have any runoff wow. because, you know, it's so dense at mm -hmm. the soil surface that it just slows that water down to where it is mm -hmm. absorbed. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that I think cities, you know, putting in pockets of, of prairies and, and different things uh, would be uh, very positive to do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, no, there's no doubt about it that we see a lot less runoff. Um, and uh, Yeah, I imagine, like, uh, you know, a crop farmer or a landowner that has an area that's, maybe not great drainage, yeah. maybe never super productive, yeah. could think about converting yeah. that to prairies. Oh, there's no doubt getting... about it. And that's the thing that, that we probably have out on the golf course a little more latitude with, um, that we can get a little bit more specific on, on where we plant seeds. For instance, if there's a, a um, agriculture soybean farmer that decides that, that they want to put 40 to 100 acres or more into tall grass prairie if they could find the seed to do it and the whole thing, um, that they could, you know, go out and, and they would just, because of the scale, you know, they would just pretty much have all their seed mixed together and put it out. But in our situation where we have out on the, the property um, some high areas that were once prairie and low areas in prairie, when we, when we uh, harvest our seed, and pick those plants out that we want to harvest seed from, we can pick plants from hillsides mm -hmm. that we know are going to do better on that area and, mm -hmm. and, and then go from there. So in that situation where you've maybe got um, a farmer, whoever, that's got a hillside that nothing will grow on, they, they can find plants, native tall grass prairie plants or short grass prairie plants that will exist there. You know, little blue stem does really, really well on a drier you know, hillside, um, mm -hmm. and pale purple coneflower and other, uh, wildflowers do better on a, a drier site like that too. So, mm -hmm. um, you can definitely find a, a, a plant to, to fill in that void in those areas. Yeah. And that just reminds me that, um, 
how much we can learn from where plants are growing. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. plants um, are often indicators of what's going on underground in the That's soil. Right. And so That's when you right. have native plants growing, you can learn from yeah. sort of the native ecology. You can. And like you said, in, in those areas, um, you know, uh, uh, only a third to a quarter of uh, what you see above ground is is the... Um, the biomass of that so if, if you know what you see above ground is generally only a quarter to a third of that plant's biomass that three quarters to uh you know two-thirds of that is under the ground so again in terms of drought and stuff they are thousands of years of of uh, developing um mm-hmm. that type of drought system and um they can deal with it for sure mm-hmm. yeah and in terms of you know a lot of uh People are, you know, concerned, what can I do about climate change? Well, native prairie-type uh, ecosystems are just, you know, pumping the carbon out of the air into the soil. So that's right. That's another and positive. There, there's a stat up there, and I can't remember it, but it, there's no doubt about it. It, it I think it's it, a ton per acre of carbon that it stores uh, per year. Um, they're, they're amazing systems. Again, they've been around a long, long time Mm -hmm. and, uh, thousands and thousands of years and, and, you know, they know their deal. They know what to do and they know where to be. And it's just, uh, everything else that's coming down on them right now that they've never had to deal with. (laughs) But, uh, but it's been very positive for us. And again, just like you saw today when we were watching them the prescribed burnout there. I mean, there are folks coming through with their cameras and seeing it. And these, these may be people that have never seen a burn before. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll go back home tonight and, and see on the news. And, you know, there was someone out there with the paper taking a picture today, and mm-hmm. that's going to be in the news tomorrow's paper saying prescribed burn at Ben Gary, and this is what they're doing it for. So, uh, again, being in the middle of the town really has some, some positive elements to it to, to get the word out on what Tallgrass Prairie is, to get the word out on, on these management practices that we need to put back in our systems. Right, right. So, Well, there, I think we should or need to wrap up, but are there any final parting thoughts you would like to share with folks about what you're doing here? Or? No, I would just tell, uh, like to say that uh, try it. You know, do it. I think this is uh, very positive. Uh, one one thing I would like to mention, uh, if if someone says, "Well, I'm, I'm heard from my grandpa or my grandma that we used to have a prairie out back, and there was one down the road or whatever," well, uh, when the the original surveyors were coming across the United States, and especially in Arkansas, um, a lot of them would make those notes in the original plats, and you can get on the um, the Bureau of Land Management's website and you can click on your state and in your county and you can put in your your township and range and look at those plat maps and Mm -hmm. you can see exactly where um, prairies were where maybe wetlands were and things like that you can you can learn a lot from from those so uh, you know if if you think that you maybe had one because in Arkansas uh, you know not the whole state was was prairie you know it was just Mm -hmm. pockets here and there but but uh, we did have prairie here in a lot of southeastern states that everybody thinks that uh, you know the old story about the squirrel getting on a tree on the east coast and hopping on it all the way until they get out to the west Mm -hmm. you know that wasn't the case there were there were prairies in georgia and in tennessee and in arkansas and uh, 
So I would, uh, again, just say to, to do a little bit of research, ask some questions, find out where you can get some seed and try them. Yeah, that's great advice. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for your time today. This has been really really a great experience for me. Thank you very much. I hope we've inspired a lot of people to go out there and start planting uh, at least some native species, if not, if not some establishing, reestablishing some native habitats. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to ATRA, Voices from the Field. Depending on the platform you're listening on, be sure to rate us and leave a review or comment. For more information on this topic, you can contact Nina Prater directly via email at ninap at ncat.org. That's N-I-N-A-P at N-C-A-T dot org. And please call ATRA with any and all of your sustainable agriculture questions at 800-346-9140 or email us at askanag at ncat.org. That's A-S-K-A-N-A-G at N-C-A-T dot org. Our two dozen specialists can help you with a vast array of topics, everything from farm planning to pest management, from produce to livestock and soils to aquaculture. You can get in touch with them and find our other extensive and free sustainable agriculture publications, webinars, videos, podcasts, and other resources at the ATRA website, www.atra.incat.org. That's www.attra.ncat.org. We'll catch you next week, and until then, keep on farming.